So everybody's talking about what happened at the Oscars. It was kind of amazing because many of us didn't see that this was coming and didn't even know it had been in the works for quite a while. Of course, I'm talking about Steph Curry winning an Oscar as an executive producer for the best short subject documentary. Uh, this documentary was called The Queen of Basketball, and it's about Lucia Harris, one of the first women's basketball superstars in the 1970s, who is only, is also rather, the only woman drafted by an NBA team, which is actually the men's professional league in the U.S. Uh, anyhow, beyond Steph Curry winning an Oscar for that documentary, I hear there were a few other significant things that happened as well, because by Monday, we were asked to pick sides between Will or Chris. But if you wanted to wait to have an opinion, uh, then that sort of made both sides mad. And in general, our culture is becoming quick to hold people in positions of power accountable for their wrongdoings. After generations and centuries of not holding those in authority accountable for their actions, there's been a strong push in the last few decades to publicly hold celebrities, politicians, and athletes accountable. And this has been a necessary change, especially for marginalized groups who have been oppressed with typically no consequences coming to the oppressors. And many times we align ourselves with the side that we can relate to. And then some of the time we align ourselves opposite of the side that we disagree with or we just don't like. But what happens if we are the ones who do wrong? If we are completely honest or consistent and congruent, we would want to be held accountable to the same degree that we would want anyone else to be held accountable, especially those on the opposite side. However, most of us are rarely consistent or congruent in the application of our beliefs and our opinions regarding consequences, especially if we are the ones facing the consequences. So again, what happens if we are the ones who do wrong? More on that in a moment. Uh, we're in a season called Lent that prepares us for the death and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, which is coming up in two weeks. We're looking at lessons we can learn from Jesus in this time leading up to his death on the cross, his ultimate sacrifice for the world. And in week four, last Sunday, we talked about how consumerism has inundated our culture and our mindsets about most of life. Uh, once a product no longer serves our needs, we switch products, right? However, problems start bubbling up to the surface when this consumerist mentality sort of seeps into other areas of our lives, including our relationships, our faith, and basically anything other than normal transactions. And Jesus addressed this with a powerful and a challenging teaching. Uh, Jesus would highlight how this invitation to a relationship with God is free to all people, that God invites everyone to have the opportunity for a relationship with Him, and that opportunity is free. And yet, at the same time, Jesus was very clear that anyone who wants to follow Him needs to understand that there will also be a cost to following Him. And that cost might be sacrificing your freedom, your convenience, your status in the eyes of others, but that cost it might also be a conflict. Uh, it might be persecution or even death because you are following Jesus. The following Jesus is moving from a passive consumer to an engaged contributor. And at some level, we will always be consumers because of the point, uh, because to our point for the message today, we will always need something from God, whether that's time with God, time with other Jesus followers, uh, maybe we need encouragement or help. But if we are serious about following Jesus, our life should start to move from just consuming to also contributing. Because being a consumer isn't fulfilling for very long, and I would suggest that God designed us to find fulfillment and purpose in contributing to the mission of God in the world. If you want to catch up on any of the messages from this series, 
head over to our YouTube channel. Uh, today, though, we're talking about how our culture is becoming quick to hold people in positions of power accountable for their actions and for their wrongdoings. Uh, this has been a necessary change, uh, especially for marginalized groups of people who have been oppressed with typically no consequences coming to their oppressors. However, what happens if we are the ones who do wrong? What do we do if we find ourselves needing help? Whether we need help because of our own wrongdoing, or because of the wrongdoing of others, or maybe because of something for no fault of our own, what do we do? Uh, thankfully, Jesus actually provides us with two instances that demonstrate how God would handle the oppressors and those being oppressed. We're going to start reading in Luke chapter 18. You can follow along in the Bible app. If you don't have a Bible app, head to bible.com slash app. Uh, once you're in the app, head to the More menu option in the bottom right corner, select Events, and you can find our church. We'll also have all the notes and verses on the screen as well. So these two instances uh, really sort of happen at the end of one of the chapters and then at the beginning of the next chapter, but it seems that they sort of go together as we're going to see today. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. As Jesus approach, approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. Now Jericho is sort of like a smaller resort town, which means that there are wealthy people as well as those who serve the wealthy people. And those who serve are part of the lower class. And as we'll see with this man, this man was begging beside the road. Now beggars were thought of a little bit differently back then than we think of them in our medians of our streets today. But basically, they were still at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. And Jesus is approaching Jericho, and as he's approaching, word about him is coming and sort of spreading around. And he has been teaching things that no one has heard before. He's been healing people that nobody's ever seen healing like this before. So imagine hearing that Jesus was coming to your hometown. Imagine being part of that lower class of people as a beggar or just as a poor family. Imagine you had some sort of chronic health issue, which probably is any health issue would become that chronic in those days without modern medicine. But imagine you had some sort of chronic health issue and you haven't found a remedy for your pain, but you find out this healer, Jesus, is coming. Imagine you've done something very bad things in your life, but you hear that there's this rabbi teaching about forgiveness for your sins and you find out he's coming to your area. Whatever your reason would be for wanting to meet Jesus, you hear he's coming and so you rush to greet him before he even enters your town. However, this blind beggar obviously can't see what's happening. Verse 36, when the blind beggar heard the noise of a crowd going past, he asked what was happening. They told him that Jesus the Nazarene was going by. So he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And this beggar is using a title that's designated for the Messiah, uh, the person that they expected and hoped would come to save the Jewish people from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And most Jews hoped for a particular version of the Messiah that would overthrow Rome and bring a new kingdom of Israel. And so this blind beggar uses that messianic title, Son of David, hoping that this is the Messiah that will come to save the Jews and him particularly. Verse 39, Be quiet, the people in front yelled at him. And if you're oppressed, it doesn't feel good to be on the bottom of society, and it especially doesn't feel good to be, on the, to be silenced by the rest of the society. And you know that they don't want you to get in front of them or sort of cut in front of them in line, and so they just try to hush you, which isn't necessarily new if you spent your whole life being overlooked and told to be silent. But not today for this blind beggar. But he only shouted louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 40, when Jesus heard him, he stopped and ordered 
that the man be brought to him. As the man came near, Jesus asked him. Now, Jesus not only sort of stopped to address the situation, Jesus not only looked at this man who had been overlooked and literally couldn't see that Jesus saw him, but Jesus subtly or not so subtly rebukes those in the crowd by inviting this unimportant blind man over to him. And Jesus asked him, verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this might seem like an offensive or maybe a sarcastic question because, of course, the blind man wants to see. But Jesus provides an opportunity for the blind man to consider the options. It's possible this blind man was blind from birth, or at least, uh, at the very least, he became blind and couldn't work anymore. And so he spent a significant amount of his, or a significant segment of his life, living off the charity of the people around him. He might not even know how to make a living beyond being a beggar. And so Jesus understands this, and he understands this man is blind, but Jesus is sort of acknowledging that if he heals this man, this man's life will change. Moving forward, he wouldn't be able to make a living in the same way that he had in the past. Basically, this man has to decide if he is willing to live in a completely different way than he used to. If this man is willing, then Jesus offers him healing. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, all right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And Jesus offers this man something he can't do on his own and he didn't necessarily earn. Jesus offers this man grace. Jesus offers his healing for free, and this man can't do anything to repay it or to pay for it. And yet, at the same time, this man's choice to be healed will cost him something. At the very least, it will cost him because his life will be different from how he used to live. And familiarity is a powerful and a valuable thing for most of us. And Jesus offers this man a free gift that starts a journey for this man that will continue for the rest of his life. And so as we start the story, we learn that Jesus stands with the oppressed. But what about the crowd? Like, the crowd who tried to silence this man, what will the crowd do? Well, Jesus already sort of subtly criticized them by going against their wishes. How will they respond after Jesus heals this blind beggar? Verse 43, instantly the man could see and he followed Jesus, praising God. And all who saw it praised God too. And they sort of changed from shushing to applauding. Uh, right after that though, this Luke records for us in Luke chapter 9 verse 1, 19 verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. Now, it's important to note that the Jewish people hated tax collectors because the tax collectors collected taxes for Rome, who they did not think should be over them. So they hated Rome too. However, even more than that, Jewish people hated other Jewish people who decided to become tax collectors for Rome. They saw these people as traitors who sided with the Roman Empire in order to make themselves wealthy at the expense of their own people. So not only is Zacchaeus a tax collector for Rome, but he's a chief tax collector for Rome. Now these tax collectors didn't just collect the necessary taxes, they overcharged people and then pocketed the difference because as long as Rome got its money, Rome didn't care. And so Zacchaeus tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Now, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he has at least two problems. Number one, he's short, and number two, he's hated. It would be one thing if he was just short and couldn't see over the crowd, because generally, if the crowd liked you, they would probably let you in so you could see. But again, Zacchaeus is not just short, he's also hated because of what he has been doing. And so what is Zacchaeus going to do? Verse 4, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Now, he does two weird things for someone of his wealthy status 
in this Middle, Middle Eastern culture. First, he runs, which is something you just don't do. And second, he climbs a tree, which again is just something you don't do in this culture. Now, the sycamore fig tree that he climbed had thicker foliage. And so maybe Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he didn't want to be seen in the tree by anyone else and then sort of had to face the crowd's ridicule. And so he chose this thicker tree. But then what Zacchaeus might have thought would be the worst possible outcome, that actually happens. Verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said. How did Jesus know, though, that Zacchaeus was in the tree if it had this thick foliage? Well, some scholars believe that it is likely Jesus noticed Zacchaeus because other people in the crowd noticed Zacchaeus and started shouting at him in the tree. And when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said. So putting these two instances together, it seems that in one part of Jericho, Jesus took the side of the oppressed. Now, some of you know what that is like. You've been oppressed. You've lived your life in desperation. And Jesus says, I'm with you. I see you. You are important to me. Then Jesus goes from that part of Jericho with the oppressed to another part of the town where he finds an oppressor, someone who has taken advantage of those who have less than he does. And this oppressor has become wealthy at the expense of his victims. And through both instances, the crowd is still with Jesus. Even though initially they were sort of shushing the blind beggar, eventually they were praising God when Jesus healed the blind beggar. And then they see Jesus interact with their oppressor, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Now the crowd probably would have loved for Jesus to walk up to that tree and to rebuke Zacchaeus, saying something like, you've profited from the sweat, the blood, the tears of these people. You've hurt them and taken advantage of them to make yourself wealthy. So now, Zacchaeus, you must sacrifice and repent of your sins and then apologize for your actions towards these people. If Jesus would have said that, the crowd likely would have cheered. The crowd would have been on Jesus' side, but that is not what Jesus does. Verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. And so the crowd is sort of shocked by what Jesus is doing. Uh, maybe they feel betrayed, like that is not how this was supposed to happen, Jesus. If you are really the son of David, the Messiah that was predicted long ago, then you're supposed to be on the side of the oppressed and the victims, not on the side of the oppressor. However, as, Tony, as Dr. Tony Evans says, Jesus didn't come to take sides, Jesus came to take over. And in some ways, Jesus takes the anger, the rage, and the fury of the crowd, and he sort of takes it off of Zacchaeus and transfers it to himself. And in this moment, the crowd is not mad at Zacchaeus, they're mad at Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus would do later for every one of us when he went to the cross. This is sort of a foreshadowing of something he would do for everyone. And yet, Jesus' actions in this moment change something in Zacchaeus. Verse 8, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this house today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, similar to today, the crowd is with Jesus when he rescues the oppressed, but the crowd is displeased when he offers grace to the oppressor. At least from our modern sensibilities, we assume the crowd would want a strong speech rebuking the oppressor. And instead, 
Jesus offers salvation to a broken man who desperately needs it. And sometimes we are the oppressed, right? And sometimes we are the oppressors. Sometimes we are wronged, and sometimes we are wrong. Sometimes we're the victim, and sometimes we victimize others. Sometimes we are hurt and damaged by unjust systems, and sometimes we benefit from unjust systems. So what can we learn from these two stories placed back-to-back in Luke's Gospel? Well, Jesus stands with the oppressed and offers salvation to the oppressor. That Jesus offers grace and rest and peace and healing to anyone who needs it. So I don't know what you need today, but you can likely relate to being both a victim and to victimizing others. Uh, Being oppressed and being an oppressor. Sometimes you made decisions that led to those things and other times you were dealt cards that you wouldn't choose. Uh, One of the most powerful things that Jesus did in the first century was give people the opportunity to sort of trade in whatever cards they were dealt for something new and different. He gave people the opportunity for a new life, something completely different than what they were used to. And in a world where there was almost no sort of upward mobility that didn't exist, Jesus brought an opportunity to trade in whatever cards they were handed for something better. So today, I'm going to suggest four things that God offers you whether you are oppressed or you're the oppressor, whether you've been wronged or you are wrong. What do you need most from Jesus today? Grace, maybe rest, maybe peace or healing. Uh, Some of us need grace. One way to think about grace comes from Pastor Josh Crane. He says this, grace is God's ability to inject himself into the area of our lives that we aren't able or aren't capable of fixing ourselves. That Jesus brought this grace to both of these people in these two situations, the oppressed and the oppressor. And interestingly, the story of both of these men changed from this moment. The blind man isn't able to continue to live like he did before because he had an encounter with Jesus. His life is different. And Zacchaeus is different because he knows he shouldn't go back to the life he used to live. He needs to allow God to sort of change and transform his life in a new way. But like us, he can't do that on his own. And Zacchaeus needs God's grace in a different way than the blind beggar. And we also need the grace of God to inject himself into the areas of our lives that we can't fix ourselves. So what area of your life do you need the grace of God to inject himself into your life that you can't fix yourself? I want to invite you to take a moment right now and sort of open the hands, open your hands, palms up as sort of a symbolic way to receive God's grace through the words of Scripture. So to us, to let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Uh, maybe some of us need rest because we are so exhausted and worn out and tired. If you need rest, I invite you to open your hands right now as I read these words from Jesus from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Now maybe some of us need peace, need the peace of God, which, which might seem impossible in a life full of stress and anxiety. Uh, some of you need the peace of Christ that surpasses our understanding. The peace of Christ is for you today. And if you need that peace, I again invite you to open your hands right now as I read these words from Jesus recorded in John chapter 14. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, when he, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. 
I am leaving you a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Uh, maybe some of us need healing, maybe from something physical. I can't promise you that you will definitely be healed. However, in this moment, Jesus offers us a healing that might take place now, but for sure will take place in eternity. Healing for our bodies, healing for our souls, healing for our minds. If you need healing, whether physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, I invite you to open your hands as I read these words from Peter about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and alive for what, he, what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Then Peter reminds us of our status, whether or not we are healed. And more importantly, he reminds us of God's status, whether or not we are healed. Verse 25, once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. So what do you need most from Jesus today? Because whether you are the oppressed or the oppressor, whether you've been wronged or you are wrong, Jesus stands with the oppressed and offers salvation to the oppressor. This is a simple reminder that he loves you and offers this to you. He cares for you enough that wherever you are, he is with you. He is for you. He wants to walk with you forward into the future. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for these stories that are so different, and yet they still communicate the same thing, that, that you were willing to stand with the, those who are oppressed, and you're willing to offer salvation for those of us who maybe have been oppressors. So God, would you help us to receive the grace, the, the peace, the rest, uh, whatever it might be that we need from you today, would you help us to look to you first for it, and would you help us to receive it as well? God, would you do something special in our hearts that we can't do on our own? We've tried. We've tried to fill voids. We've tried to do things and, and fix things that we can't do on our own. So, God, we need your grace first and foremost. We know that we can't do it without you. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.